Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks, everybody, for joining me again for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I'm very glad to have you with us uh, today. Uh, uh, today begins what, what I think it's fair to say will be two days, uh, somber days in many ways, but also, I hope, celebratory uh, moments to uh, talk about the extraordinary life of Congressman John Lewis. Um, as you heard in the headlines, uh, his body will be uh, uh, lying in state at the state capitol starting uh, this afternoon at 3 o'clock, um, and the public will be welcome to come and uh, pass by and pay a uh, last uh, tribute to John. 2 o'clock, he'll be uh, greeted by the governor, by Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, and by the dean of the Georgia legislature, um, Calvin Smyrie, and there will be a a private service with elected officials who will talk about John Lewis's life and what he meant particularly to the people of certainly of the 5th District and uh, to the state of Georgia. Uh, tomorrow, the funeral uh, will take place at Ebenezer Baptist Church at 11 a.m. NPR will begin its coverage of the funeral at 10.30, and all of our GPB radio stations will be carrying the funeral live. You'll also be able to listen to it at gpb.org, so many ways for you to uh, stay in touch with the funeral of John Lewis tomorrow. Um, And as we've been doing all week, we are going to continue today uh, giving some of the people who knew him well an opportunity to talk about his life and the meaning it has had for all of us. And a little later in the show, we'll talk about some other news uh, that's been important news that's going on in the state right now. But let me start by introducing our panel. I'm very pleased to welcome back to uh, the Political Rewind uh, microphone, uh, former Congressman Buddy Darden, former Congressman of the 7th District. Buddy Darden, it's a pleasure to have you back with us. It's been a while. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you, Bill. It's an honor to be here with you and this distinguished panel this morning to talk in this time of sadness, but also great celebration for a wonderful, wonderful friend. And we'll all miss him, but at at least we know that uh, he's in a better place. Well, buddy, I do want to pay it. I do want to mention to people that you are on vacation with your family and you said that you would come back. Well, you're you're still out there uh, at the beach somewhere, but that you would uh, spend time with us today. And I'm very grateful you're doing that. So thanks for being here. Uh, We're also joined today by Theron Johnson. He is the founder and CEO of Paramount Consulting. You see him as a regular every uh, Sunday morning at 8.30 on the Georgia Gang on Fox 5 News. And Theron Johnson, since we invited you to be on today's show, uh, you also have taken on a new role as senior advisor to the Biden campaign here in Georgia. Congratulations on that. And we also have to say, of course, that one of the reasons we're so happy to have you here today is you have had a long-standing professional and personal relationship with um, 
Congressman Lewis. Uh, thank you very much for being here, Theron. Thank you so much, Bill. I really appreciate um, you inviting me. And yes, this has been a uh, very tough time for a lot of us as we honor the life and legacy of Congressman John Lewis. And we'll get to uh, having each of you talk about your relationships with him uh, after I've introduced everybody. Um, we're also joined today uh, by uh, Professor Joe Crispino. He is the Jimmy Carter Professor of American and Southern History at Emory University. Uh, and, and Joe, I'm glad you're here because uh, you will be able to help us put John Lewis's life into a broad historical context that gives us a sense of really just how important he has been to the 20th and 21st century history of the United States. Yeah, it's a remarkable life um, that, speak, that touches on so many important aspects of, of modern and recent history, and I'm delighted uh, to be with you here today, Bill, as always. And we're joined by Donna Lowry. She is the host of GPB's Lawmakers, and uh, Donna, as a reporter in the Atlanta um, metro market for a long time, you certainly uh, spent your time often on covering Congressman John Lewis. Thank you for being here, Donna. 34 years in the area. I had a chance to meet and interview him over the years. But I live in his district, so I'll talk later about seeing him around the district on a, on a regular basis. Yeah, I look forward to that. Buddy Darden, you're the senior member of the Political Rewind delegation today. You've known John Lewis longer than uh, any of the rest of us. Um, you, you can go back all the way to 1987 when he was sworn in as a, a first-term member of the U.S. House. Right, buddy? Right, buddy? That's right, Bill. I had been in Congress for a term and a half. I'd been elected in a special election in 83, and so when John Lewis was elected to Congress, I was already serving. When John Lewis was elected, by the way, uh, in uh, 1986 to take office in 1987, Bill, Georgia only had 10 members of the House, represented by only 10 congressmen, the whole state. Now we have, as you know, we've got, we've got 14 and probably 15 in the next census or two. But what was unusual at the time uh, is that John Lewis and I were the only two congressmen who represented, Democratic congressmen, who represented the Atlanta area. Pat Swindle was representing DeKalb County and the east part of the Atlanta area, and Newt Gingrich at that time was representing Clayton South. So John and I were the only two Democrats representing the Atlanta area, so we were uh, thrown together quite often, uh, meeting with constituents, and got to know each other quite well. Now, it might come as a surprise to a lot of people that when John Lewis was elected to Congress, of course, he had had a very, very controversial election that y'all have covered pretty well already, but it was not considered a really big deal when uh, John came to Congress. First of all, there was only one African-American congressman from the deep south, and that was Harold Ford, who represented the Memphis area. And there were, large, there were less than 20 members of the entire Black Caucus when, when he came. And there were older members who uh, were very senior, like Ron Dellums, John Conyers, uh, Lewis Stokes. And quite candidly, uh, they had their 
constituencies already and didn't pay a whole lot of attention to uh, John. He had to start at the bottom, just like any other freshman congressman. But John, being John Lewis, uh, accepted the situation as he was very, very uh, well known to say he kept on keeping on. His committee assignments that he first received weren't particularly outstanding. He was put on the Parks Committee, which I served with him under Mo Udall, and I think he was also on the Transportation Committee, but he certainly uh, was not awarded a place on any of the exclusive uh, committees. But John got in there, started doing his, doing his work, and made friends just like he always did. Now, the other members of the Black Caucus, of course, they had been acquainted with Andrew Young, and they have been acquainted with his opponent, Julian Bond. So they really didn't uh, take to him that much to start with, but it was John's persistence, his work ethic, and his attention to doing his job. He had told me one time, he says, the best politics is doing your job. So he just set about to, to doing his job and, and uh, making friends in the Congress and keeping his commitment. And by the way, his attendance record was one of the best in Congress from the very beginning. He believed that they sent you up there to vote, and he voted, uh, probably with a higher percentage than most of the members there. In the meantime, we got to be very, very close friends because, uh, like I say, we were only two Democrats representing the Atlanta area, and we were uh, in the Democratic majority. At that time, uh, Tip O'Neill and then Jim Wright and then Tom Foley were the speakers under, under, which, under which we served. But, but John uh, slowly but surely uh, built up a reputation for hard work and keeping his word and, and that kind of thing. As I mentioned, we became close friends. His wife, Lillian, and my wife, Lillian, of course, were named the same, and we joked and, uh, about that a lot. We got to know our families quite well because we were together on a lot of uh, congressional trips that the Democratic caucus would take and go from place to place. And Lillian, his, his uh, late wife and my wife, Lillian, became very close. And his son, John Miles, was about the same age as my son, George, and, and they became close as well. And that relationship continued until the time that uh, my daughter Christy was married and Lillian Lewis entertained and it was a big deal when they came to Marietta to uh, her we her wedding. And then uh, a number of years later, uh, accompanied by our friend Theron Johnson, who's on with us this morning, John Lewis came to the Carter Center to my uh, son's wedding and his his uh, wife, Casey. So that was a, a big day and I'm sure Theron will remember that, but what a, what a great, great joy it was to have John Lewis to attend both of my, both of my uh, children's weddings, and that's the kind of friends, friends that uh, we were. We spent and shared Theron a lot of experiences Johnson. together, and uh, I'll always be grateful for the friendship. After I left Congress, uh, I was honored to serve, uh, frankly, as this personal lawyer on a number of things that uh, we obviously can't discuss here today. And also, I had the opportunity uh, to serve as his campaign treasurer. But I do have to tell you one thing, and then I'll let somebody else talk. Uh, 
Lee and Lewis uh, had a traffic accident one day, and uh, she was cited and given given a ticket. Well, uh, she didn't think that she was responsible. I tried to just say, we'll pay the ticket and forget about it and so forth. But no, she insisted on going to court. So we went to court at the Atlanta traffic court. And after a short hearing, uh, I was able to convince the judge to find her not guilty. Well, we had been dropped off at the traffic court and she was so delighted. She says, I'm not going to have uh, my lawyer have to take a cab back to his office. So she picked up the phone and calls John and he was in his office in the equitable building and has John come by the traffic court and give us a ride uh, back back to my office where we had a little celebration. And a funny thing or two about John, and then I'll let you go. One is he had the same piece of luggage uh, from the time of his freedom rider days. He always had that old awful looking leather piece of luggage that he kept for sentimental reasons that he always, always traveled with. And John Lewis there, and you remember this, he didn't learn to drive until he was in, in his in his thirties uh, or so because he had either always been, been transported or locked up or carried somewhere or driven somewhere. So uh, he was just a totally unique personal guy and and I'm so glad that to see the uh, public persona honored, but he was just a regular guy down to earth with faults and warts, and just like all the rest of us. But he believed in his principle and carrying out his principle, but also he was just a regular, good friend, honest, trustworthy, and loyal. I could go on all day. All right, Theron, well, yeah, and, and buddy, thank you for starting us off with those reminiscences about him. Theron Johnson, um, it is interesting. Uh, you uh, um, got to know John, I think, a little later. You're young. You're much younger, obviously, than Buddy and John Lewis. But um, but it is interesting to hear Buddy say that when when uh, uh, Congressman Lewis first arrived at the U.S. House, I mean, we know he'd already done gone through the Freedom Rides. We know he'd been beaten in Selma and then crossed the bridge. We know he'd spoken at the March on Washington. But all of those, that kind, that part of his history didn't seem, based on what Buddy's saying, to come with him and mark him as an exceptional first-termer in the U.S. House. He had to build his stature and his reputation uh, after that. Now we remember all those things, but you were with him uh, for a good part of his journey forward. Talk to us about that, Theron. Well, thank you so much, Bill. And, and before we get into that, I just wanted to thank Congressman Buddy Darden for his kind words. Uh, Congressman Darden, Congressman Lewis not only loved you as a brother, he really admired you. He, he always talked about the mini car rides, how you guys served together. And, you know, Congressman Darden was also my suite mate at McKenna Long and Aldridge when I was there. And I just remember uh, walking in my office many times and hearing Congressman Darden on the phone with Lillian Lewis or, or Michael Collins, the chief of staff, or even Congressman Lewis. And so thank you, Congressman Darden, for your, your years of friendship uh, and dedication to the legacy of John Lewis. Um, but, but, Bill, one of the things that was very interesting this week is that I had a chance to travel to Washington, D.C., and I was in the rotunda where the world saw Congressman Lewis honored by a bipartisan group of elected members of Congress, but Speaker Pelosi, 
led that effort. And one of the things that I heard consistently from some of the older members of the Congressional Black Caucus is exactly what Buddy just outlined. When Congressman Lewis was elected, not selected, he was elected in 1986 in a very controversial election, he went to the Congress as a very, very low-level freshman member. And he talked about how he had to work his way up through the committee. And quite frankly, there was years of healing because Congressman Lewis wasn't sort of um, a part of the Atlanta elite, the black elite. Uh, and what he did so uniquely is that he built a coalition of voters in the 5th District that were people of the LGBTQ plus community. He has outstanding relationships with our Jewish community uh, in Atlanta. Um, and quite frankly, a lot of the neighborhood leaders like Ann Kramer and Charles Huddleston, the names that you don't hear a lot, were supporting John all the way back to 1981. And so when he went to Congress, he, he had to earn it. No one gave Congressman Lewis anything. He ran for the seat. He won it. And it took him years and years and years to really build up his electoral reputation because he did come in as a um, part of the big six. He was the youngest speaker at the March on Washington. He had marched with Dr. King. He had ran SNCC. And a lot of people predict this bill. But when John Lewis ran for Congress in 1977, he lost. And he lost that first race for Congress. That was his first attempt to ever run for elected office. And President Jimmy Carter hired him to run an organization called Action. And so my point is, is that this is a man who was basically not given anything. He earned every single um, accolade, every single uh, compl every compliment that he's gotten from people all across the world. Uh, he earned it. And I think that he worked this way up through Congress. And that's why I've been a big supporter of giving the people of the 5th District an opportunity to vote, to have them have a voice in Congress to make sure um, that we continue to honor him and his legacy. You know, Theron, uh, I, I want to just pick up on, on uh, one of the things you said a minute ago, and then I want to, after you answer it, ask you about it, Donna. Um, you point out that uh, John Lewis, early in his political career, did have to figure, had to have build biracial coalitions. The race that we've alluded to a couple times now, that 1986 race against um, Julian Bond, which we have talked about pretty extensively in the last week on the show, a bitter, bitter contest. Julian Bond, certainly Theron, was that black elite in, uh, in the city of Atlanta. The, he was expected uh, to roll to victory in that race. And John Lewis won that race on the, on the strength of white voters. Um, Julian Bond won the African-American vote in that 5th District race in 1986. But even back then, as you point out, people like Ann Kramer, white uh, Atlantans like Ann Kramer were seeing something in him, and he was finding a way to build relationships across racial lines, which certainly is what his entire life in Congress became, Theron. Yeah, I mean, I can go on and on. Sherry Frank, Elaine Alexander, uh, and Mr. Alexander, these are all people who knew Congressman Lewis very well. But what was very interesting about the 1986 race, and I spent a lot of time with Congressman Lewis um, working for him for almost four years, but also I spent some time in his home when he came um, to Atlanta to rest and be with his family. And the last conversation we had about the 1986 race was that while, you know, Julian Bond was his friend, 
I mean, Bill, Julian Bond was the Barack Obama before there was a Barack Obama. I remember growing up in Athens, Georgia, I have a brother who's 10 years older than me, and we would listen to tapes. You're talking about a great orator, a scholar, uh, a person who had so much diction and cadence and his ability to really move you with his speeches. I mean, that was Julian Bond. And so what Congressman Lewis figured out is that he got a fair share. He got the share of the African-American vote that he needed. There were people like Henrietta Antony. I'm just naming all these soldiers and people who fought for him in 1986 that don't get the credit that they deserve. But he built that coalition um, with the Jewish community, with the neighborhoods, with the LGBTQ plus uh, community. I mean, they came out for Congressman Lewis in a big way. And so he really introduced us to the Atlanta way of building the right coalition to not only elect members of Congress, but it's something that I've been able to learn from as I've helped elect two mayors in this city, because you've got to have the right coalition of people that will go out and vote for you. And John Lewis did that, and we owe him a great deal of gratitude for showing us how to get in the way and how to get elected in the 5th District. Donna, I remember that 1986 race between Bond and Lewis very, very well. And, of course, uh, Lewis's slogan uh, in that race was a workhorse, not a show horse, to contrast himself from the very elegant uh, Julian Bond. And we could just picture John Lewis as that workhorse, the guy who just kept pushing and pushing and pushing, a man of common roots, a man of the people. Talk a little bit about your experiences with Congressman Lewis. Yeah, I can tell you that I came in in November, right two weeks after that election, uh, November of 1986. And I started at Channel 11 on November 16th. So the city was still dealing with the, the, the aftermath of that election. And I remember coming in and knowing about both Julian Bond and, um, and of course, Congressman John Lewis. But I did not realize that the tension in the city, that the the divide that had happened during the the election, but it was there. There were still remnants of that for years later, um, especially as things started coming out about Julian Bond's life and all. But he was certainly well known on the national stage, uh, Julian Bond. And I remember feeling that it, the the shock that a lot of people did that he didn't win that. But as far as John Lewis is concerned, I certainly met him early on, interviewed him over the years, uh, and always enjoyed that. My most memorable um, moment with him was in 2011 when 11 Alive produced a show called Letters to Our Children. It was called The John Lewis Story. And it was right before he received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And um, so it was a chance for some of us at Channel 11 to introduce our children to him. So at Ebenezer Baptist Church, the old Ebenezer, the historic Ebenezer, we a few of us brought our children who um, were we pulled out of school that day because this was such a monumental occasion. And we took them over to the historic um, Ebenezer and we had them interview John Lewis. So they were able to sit there and wow. ask questions. And my daughter was one of the people who had a chance to do that. Um, it was very emotional at the time for all of us to get a chance to do that. And it was from their perspective. We didn't do anything. And I remember my daughter did ask a question about, how, you know, how the young people of that that era of 2011 uh, were nine years ago would move on. And he said the same thing he always did. And that was about making sure people vote. 
And she, that has been um, something that has stuck with her since that time. Her sister, who is younger, who I couldn't pull out of school that day, is still upset with me that I did not pull her out of school for that, that moment. <laughs> but that, um, that, that show has aired in the recent, um, in recent days, and it's been great to see that. Um, the other thing is I live in his district. I have since I moved here, and it was great to see him on a regular basis. So because he lived in the district, he still went out, and I would see him at different places. I remember spending about a half hour in a CVS with him one day, just seeing him, being surprised to see him, and then started talking to him. And I remember thinking, why, aren't everybody, why isn't everybody else stopping? Why isn't there a crowd around him right now? People would look, but I think they were kind of shy about talking to him. And then one day I came out, uh, I was on my way into a Kroger, and he was co- pushing a, a shopping cart coming out of the Kroger. And I said, Congressman Lewis, you're, you're pushing your own cart, you, you know, <laughs> here, right here um, in front of everybody. And he's like, oh, sure. And so he and I talked for a while, and, uh, and he, um, I said, can I just get a picture of you just pushing that cart? Because I want people to see that a U.S. congressman is out shopping for himself. And uh, so I have that picture as a wonderful memory. But he was so humble, so <laughs> welcoming. And, you know, he was just one of the, a regular person when he was around people. And I think that's what made, what made him so endearing to everyone, that he was so approachable. I've got to get to a break. Uh, but I'm glad that you talked about how John Lewis talked to the young people who were part of the special at Channel 11. You did about how important the vote is, because when we come back, I want to turn to Joe Crispino and, and, and ask you, Joe, to help put in perspective, historical perspective, just how crucial John uh, Lewis was in terms of the right to vote for all people in the United States. Um, we will do that in just a minute. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Donna Lowry, Theron Johnson, Buddy Darton, and Joe Crispino joining us today as we continue this week to pay tribute uh, to uh, the late, great John Lewis. Um, both uh, Buddy and uh, uh, Theron mentioned uh, John Lewis's wife, Lillian. Uh, she passed away in 2012, and tomorrow uh, he will be laid to rest at her side um, when that funeral, after that funeral ends. Um, Joe Crispino, let me bring you in, and then I want everybody else to get back in this conversation. Uh, we can really, uh, you, you just did a show with us not too long ago that our listeners will remember about the meaning of the Confederate monuments, the mor- memorials, put them in a historic context for us. And of course, one of the things that we had to talk about then and becomes crucial to our conversation about John Lewis is you can trace, you can take a straight line from uh, you could really take it all the way back to the slavery in uh, in the United States, but certainly the post Reconstruction South, all the way through to the work that John Lewis did first in his civil rights days, marching 
uh, riding the buses and through to his work on uh, civil rights legislation in Congress. And there's a straight, direct line of American history that puts them all together, isn't there? That's right, Bill. And when you start to reflect on John Lewis's life and put it in a broader historical perspective, you begin to realize how issues of uh, the legacies of slavery, of legalized disfranchisement and, and segregation, how recent it actually is, and how much we still need to deal with it as a country. John Lewis will go down in history as a singular figure in America's Second Reconstruction, that historic grassroots movement that began to make real and sustainable the nation's century-old promise of equality and opportunity for all its citizens. And his family really connects the first and second reconstructions. I don't know if you saw recently in the documentary that showed the other night, Henry Louis Gates interviewed John Lewis and and showed him evidence that John Lewis's great-grandfather had voted in the Alabama election in 1867, and that (laughs) none of the intervening generations of, of, of people in his family had voted in an election in Alabama until the young John Lewis was able to register and vote in the 1960s. So you can tell the story of post-war disfranchisement and Jim Crow segregation through Lewis's own family. And, you know, John Lewis, of that, you think about that cohort of amazing leaders. John Lewis was not the most eloquent. He was far from the most polished. As Theron talked about, Julian Bond and Andrew Young would have been a much more polished and glamorous and and he was one of the youngest. You know, he was only 23 years old when he spoke at the March on Washington. But what distinguished John Lewis, uh, that he was certainly among the bravest and most devoted of an incredibly brave and devoted cohort of extraordinary Americans. And I think, and just to, just to echo what some of the other panelists had already said, what stands out about John Lewis is his incredible integrity and dedication. You think about that civil rights generation. And they were all so young when that happened. I mean, Martin Luther King, of course, was 26 when he led the Montgomery bus boycott. And it's, and it's a mm. hard thing to have that kind of prominence, influence, and success so early in life. Plus, I think many of them probably su- uh, suffered from what today we might recognize as PTSD. What's your second act going to be? You know, we know that a number of those leaders struggled personally to kind of find what they were going to do next in life. And I think John Lewis struggled it for a time in his life, too. But what's remarkable is to hear the testimony of Congressman Darden and Theron and others about how he, you know, he kept working at it. And he kept chopping wood, as the, folk, as the football coaches would say. And he kept committed to those, to those principles that had guided him his whole life. Uh, Buddy Darden, we, we know that as a result of the terrible beatings that John Lewis and others took in Selma on Bloody Sunday back in 1965, uh, it gave uh, President Johnson the, uh, the power that he needed to pass the first voting rights uh, bill, uh, at, at, which was supposedly designed to extend voting to all Americans that, that at times we, we know we still struggle with to this day. But, buddy, what's fascinating about that is that uh, in, in, the, in, his, in the aftermath of his death, 
um, there is a renewed call up on, on the Hill for uh, passing new legislation that will restore what the Supreme Court took out of the voting rights bill, the most important part of that probably being pre-clearance so that states like Georgia have to have the Justice Department approve any changes that are made to how voting unfolds, buddy. And there are a lot of people up there uh, saying we need to do this in, in honor of John Lewis, buddy. Well, we not only need to do it in honor of John Lewis, we need to do it because it's needed and it's right. And it's just a shame that we don't have that pre-clearance and that states like Georgia are again just slipping back in the pattern of what uh, amounts to some type of uh, voter suppression. So, yes, I think it's a great tribute to John Lewis that it ought to be done, but it also needs to be done because it's the right thing to do. You know, Buddy and Theron, you both had remarkable pictures that I saw in the last couple of days, and they speak to two different aspects of John's life um, and his death. Uh, Buddy, you sent out, you sent me and a few others, a wonderful photograph of you and Congressman Lewis sitting in a car together on a roller coaster at Six Flags coming down a hill and you were clearly both having an incredibly great time. Tell us about that picture and then Theron, I want to talk about the picture that you set out, the more somber picture of John Lewis's casket in the Capitol Rotunda. But buddy, what was happening at Six Flags that day? It was the 20th anniversary of Six Flags and we were on the great screen machine and John and I, being the Atlanta congressman, <laughs> were invited there. And John Lewis had never ridden a roller coaster before, and I had to talk him into doing it. And I said, John, it's been going on for a long time. Nobody's ever been killed. You'll be all right. But as you could see in that picture, uh, his first roller coaster ride was with me, and he was hanging on for dear life. Theron, you had the somber picture. Uh, you talked a little while ago about the fact that you were able to be in the Capitol Rotunda uh, when uh, John Lewis was honored by Congress, and then there was a public viewing uh, out on the East Front, but you were in the Rotunda itself. Um, you mentioned Nancy Pelosi's remarks that day. Uh, they were moving. Uh, the most moving thing of all, of course, was hearing John Lewis himself, his words come back at a college graduation saying never, ever give up. But tell us a little bit about what it was like for you, who got to know John Lewis so well, to be in the rotunda uh, the other afternoon. It was amazing. But before I talk to our listeners about that, I want to echo something Donna said. Donna, I do remember being in the CVS, the Kroger on Cascade. He loved going to the Publix <laughs> in Ansley Mall. I would be there with him for six hours, and he was shocked for Mrs. Lewis and his son. We haven't mentioned him yet, John Miles. He would go up and down every grocery aisle. So, Donna, I feel your pain. We would be there for literally four to six hours. Uh, but that's the type of man he was, Bill. I mean, he never, ever denied a person a picture. He, taught, he really was focused on young people. And I think that's the one thing that you guys have highlighted on the show is how – supportive he was of the Black Lives Matter movement. He showed them a lot of solidarity through his statement and different things. So I definitely want to make sure that the young people who listen to this show know that Congressman Lewis supported the nonviolent protesting that was going on to really raise some of the systemic racism that exists in our criminal justice system. But being at the rotunda, 
It was just unreal, Bill. I mean, again, you know, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said some of the best things I've ever heard him say about any elected official. He said that about John Lewis. And, you know, you can't forget, uh, you know, Majority Whip um, Jim Clyburn and his benediction. And they served together along with Buddy Darden. But it was just when 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 Speaker Pelosi pay, uh, played the words of Congressman Lewis, and I believe it was when he was making a graduation speech. And for those who of us who know Congressman Lewis, he had a very very scripted speech that he used everywhere. And he told the chicken story. He talked about how he preached to the chickens, and he always said, <laughs> "When when I was a few pounds lighter and I had all of my hair, uh, I got into good trouble. I would get in the way." But the rotunda was something that was unbelievable. And and big shout out to all of the Republican Georgia delegation members. Bill, you couldn't see this on television, but I was in the rotunda. Then I was also in a room next to the rotunda. I kind of went back and forth. You had every single Republican member of the Georgia delegation there in the room waiting to pay their respects to Congressman Lewis. And to me, that was amazing because Lord knows Congressman Lewis on policy disagreed probably 99% of the time with, with some of his Republican poli- colleagues in the Georgia delegation. But big shout out to all of them who attended. But I had an opportunity to sneak that picture and, and just really try to give my followers on Instagram and Facebook an opportunity to be there. But stay tuned. Today at the state capitol is going to be just as surreal. It's going to be just as memorable than we saw at the nation's capitol. Joe, I want to go back to uh, your comments about John Lewis, which are certainly accurate, and other people have uh, uh, echoed this throughout the week. Um, he he was a more he was a more impassioned speaker than he was a, a speaker of soaring rhetoric. But you mentioned the March on Washington speech, and I think that tells us that speech told us a lot about John Lewis. Here he was in his early twenties because he was the head of SNCC. He was invited to give a short speech at the march at the Lincoln Memorial. Um, But when he showed the speech, when he wanted the approval that every speaker needed, except I assume for Dr. King, uh, he was told he was going too far, that he, he was too radical in his presentation, that he had to tone down some of his uh, remarks. Um, And he, until a Philip Randolph who had organized the entire march looked at him and said, give him a chance to say most of this. He used the term revolution at least three times in that speech. And, and it was, may have been toned down, but we saw it even then the John Lewis, who we would get to know when he'd take to the well in the, on the floor of the house and give these impassioned speeches about issues that he cared greatly about Joe. Yeah. The other controversial line that, that was excised from that speech was a line. It was a call to return to the South to march on the South. And the line, one of the lines was to march on Georgia, like Sherman marched on Georgia, you know, and that was, um, and, and that he decided to take that out. And, you know, it, it shows is a moment where he, you see, you see the, the passionate, fiery, tenacious young John Lewis, who was the head of, you know, the youth arm, of uh, SCLC, you know, SNCC was founded as the youth arm of, of SCLC. And, um, you know, but it was, you also see a respect for his elders. I mean, A. Uh, a. Philip Randolph went to him. A. Philip Randolph, of course, was the, was the 
you know, by that time, very aged, longtime African-American leader, uh, the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping, Park, uh, Sleeping Car Porters. He had been uh, the, the brain behind an, an effort to organize a march on Washington in the early 1940s that was to protest the lack of jobs set aside for African-Americans in the new war industries that were springing up to, to arm the country for World War II. That march never happened. The mere threat of that march led President Roosevelt in 1941 to issue Executive Order 8802, which created the Fair Employment Practices Commission, which is the forerunner to the modern uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that was part of the 64 Civil Rights Act. But John Lewis respected A. Philip Randolph, and he toned down that speech. But you can see, even in that photo, in the in the White House, because after the march, they went to the they went to the White House and they met with JFK in the Oval Office, and you can see the young 23 year old John Lewis how serious he was, and how devoted he was, and fierce he was in his beliefs. Donna, one of the things that I think of, and I'll give you the last chance before we have to take a break. Uh, that I think of in my days as a reporter, I came here in 1983 and uh, so uh, saw John Lewis from that first race onward, um, is that as a reporter, you know as well as I do, there are, there are political leaders who are easy to get to and glad to talk with you and probably the most important of all, understand that your role is not necessarily to endorse positively everything they say, but to be honest in how you interpret uh, where they stand on an issue, to tell the truth as, as we know it. John Lewis was yeah. one of those guys who would talk to you whenever you needed him, and if it turned out that uh, the reporting on him wasn't as favorable as some might have mentioned, wished, he never took it to heart. He understood the role that we had, and that's a very important thing for people who work in political journalism. Yeah, I think I think that it's very much important. I think that was a, a unique part about being able to to interview him is that he you knew he you felt he was sincere and that no matter how how many tough questions you had to ask, he understood the role of that. But I don't know if you feel this way, um, Bill, but I felt like a lot of the stalwarts of the civil rights movement felt that way. Like you know when you. When you talk to Ambassador Young and when you talk to um, Joseph Lowry, Reverend Joseph Lowry, they understood the questions, the hard questions we had to ask, and they may not have been happy with those questions. But when you were able to talk with them again, you felt like they weren't remembering it or holding it against you or anything. They understood the, the balance that we had in terms of the reporting we had to do and the importance of continuing that relationship with the media and making sure they had a good relationship with the media. And so I think that certainly Congressman Lewis, you know, exemplified that part of things when it came to reporting with the, you know, reporters and what the media, what the press had to say. I, 
I got to get to a break. Let me just say in answer to that, Donna, uh, two things. Number one, let's face it, those leaders that you're talking about understood the power of the media in helping advance their cause as they confronted the police dogs and the batons in uh, Selma and when they marched on Cicero in Chicago. Uh, so they understood the power of, of, of people like us to get their message out. The other thing is, it strikes me that when you have faced police dogs and sheriffs wielding batons, uh, we're a piece of cake for all of them. We got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back in just a moment. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on Political Rewind. Just a few minutes left in uh, the show. You know, we were going to turn to other issues today, but this panel is just too... Uh, good in talking about John Lewis. So I hope all of you out there know that we will, of course, continue to follow the news of politics in the days ahead. But I'd really like to stick with John Lewis in the few minutes we have remaining. I do want to give you a quick program note. A couple of people have mentioned the fact that, you know, uh, the the old leadership, uh, we're losing most of the great old leaders of the civil rights movement. What comes next? Tomorrow, we're going going to talk about that. Tomorrow we are going to have three young leaders who have all, they say, been inspired by the work of John Lewis. James Woodall, who is the very young leader of the Georgia NAACP. Hannah Joy Gebrselisi, who is, has become, is a journalist, but has become an organizer of the Centennial Park protests after the deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Rayshard Brooks, and an even younger uh, leader stepping up, Royce Mann, a young man who got to know John Lewis when he was just a young kid and, in fact, went on, even at 18, 19 years old, to uh, lead uh, his fellow students in uh, in um, marches uh, for social justice. So tomorrow they're going to share their feelings about John Lewis, and I'm very excited about that show. Buddy Darden, with uh, some final words from you. If you were given the opportunity to speak at the ceremony in the state capitol today or tomorrow at Ebenezer Baptist Church, very briefly, what do you think you would focus on most? I would say that the John Lewis that I met when he first came to the United States Capitol was the same John Lewis that I uh, would be honoring today. And I'd also emphasize the tremendous role that his partner in life, uh, William, played in helping him and guiding him uh, through his career. Uh, two great things. And finally, one quick, one other quick thing is that President Kennedy tried to talk him sure. out of the march, but uh, he did it. He did it anyway. Buddy Darden, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to have you back. And as the election moves forward, in, uh, uh, I'm, I'm certain as we turn our attention increasingly to covering the election, you're going to I want you back, buddy. People miss you on our show. Will you come back? Of course. Thank you. Good. <laughs> Good. Theron Johnson, uh, if you had an opportunity 
uh, knowing the, the relationship you had with John Lewis. I'm not asking for soaring rhetoric here, Theron, but what do you think are the values you would emphasize? You know, I would talk about how funny Congressman Lewis was. A lot of people don't know the congressman was uh, a big jokester. Uh, you know, the last time I had a chance to see him uh, before he unfortunately passed was about a few days before he passed on that Friday. And then he liked to wear the colorful, happy socks. And if you guys ever see me on TV, I like to wear the, he called it the young boy socks. And so I would talk about how he was a, really a man of fashion. And then the last thing I would say real quickly, Bill, is that I would say that Congressman John Lewis uh, believed in democracy. And he believed the fundamental principle of democracy was the right to vote. And I think that he would want the people of the 5th District to have an opportunity to vote, not only for the Democratic nominee, but he would want them to vote for who their U.S. representative would be in Congress. Thank you for that. Donna? Yeah, well, I think I'd focus on his relationship with young people and the baton that he's passed on to young people when it comes to getting involved, being active, getting into good trouble, that kind of thing. I'm a Girl Scout leader, and my girls are now um, in their – some of them are in college, and some of them are have been influenced by what he did. I've also had a uh, recently had a chance to interview – Royce Mann, who you're going to have on the show tomorrow, and he is the legislative director for the Atlanta chapter of March for Our Lives, and he's 18 years old, yeah. and he can he yeah. can talk about getting getting involved in that directly from his relationship with Congressman Lewis. So that what he's done for young people, because he was young when he started, I think is such a gift, such a legacy. Oh, Theron, real quick, uh, you were, we all, our listeners know by now that although we can't share this video publicly because we don't have the technological means to do it, we're all watching each other on WebEx as we talk. You were nodding, as I mentioned, the young people, too, who are going to join the show tomorrow. Um, and, and, you know, remarkable group of, of young people who really are determined to carry on this legacy. Yes, Theron? Absolutely. All those names that you mentioned uh, for our listeners, uh, pay attention. All those names are going to be great leaders of our state one day. I believe many of them are going to run for public office. And so um, thank them so much for their dedication and leadership. That's what John Lewis wanted. He wanted young people to do what he did when he was in his 20s. And so big applause to all of them and all the work that they're doing for social justice in our country. Joe Crispino, as a historian, is it the fight for the right to vote is it the fight for equal justice? I mean, I guess you take all of those and wrap them up in John Lewis, but certainly his fierce determination to give the vote to all Americans will be long remembered in history, won't it? It's hard to pick out a, a, a moment in his long career, but if there was one that I would emphasize in remarks at this moment, it's the moment when he was run out of SNCC. Adversity reveals character. Oh. And it was easy in 1965 to be cynical and despondent. Even though you had a Voting Rights Act, even though you had a Civil Rights Act, there was still police brutality, poverty, economic inequality, all the issues we're still struggling with today. And yet he remained committed to nonviolence, to integration, and to the vision of the beloved community that had inspired him to, to join the movement. And, um, and that, to me, is, is, is when John Lewis became John Lewis. 
I am so glad that you mentioned that. We're completely out of time for the show, but read Jim Galloway's column in the AJC uh, this morning. Maybe we can post it on our social media platform because it speaks to the fact that John Lewis spent time in the wilderness after Stokely Carmichael deposed him at SNCC, and it took him a long time to find himself again, but when he did, he never, ever slowed down. We're out of time for uh, today's show. Thank you so much uh, to uh, you, Donna Lowry, Theron Johnson, Joe Crispino, Buddy Darden. You've just been wonderful. You've inspired me today, and I hope our listeners feel the same. Um, We're uh, back here again tomorrow. Uh, In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. I hope you please will take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.